beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless now the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us. We pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination. Father, we pray that we would be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that we would hear and believe and obey and apply, and that you would be glorified in all of this, God, as you make your church and build your church and shape your church according to the scriptures. Father, please keep me from error. Please help the things that are said today to be true and faithful to the word of God. Please give us all discernment, Father. We live in the midst of an evil and twisted generation. And we know, Father, that there will be many who have itching ears who will want to accumulate teachers for themselves that suit their own ideas and their own passions. Father, please help us to not be those kinds of people. Please help us to be people of the book, people who are shaped by the Bible. Give us discernment, God. Please build us up in the truth. We pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wanted to sum up today's passage, you could do so in just two words confrontation and calling. It's a two-word summary here of John 7. Confrontation and calling. What does Jesus do in this section of John 7? He confronts and he calls. The situation in Jerusalem, as we saw last week, is volatile and hostile. Many people are opposed to Jesus. But despite that opposition, Jesus doesn't shy away from the truth. Instead, Jesus confronts the crowd in their unbelief. He confronts the ignorance of the religious leaders. That's the first part of the passage, confrontation. But if we stop at confrontation, then we would miss, we would miss the glory of this text. Following the confrontation, 
Jesus goes on to call these same people to himself. It's remarkable, really, if you slow down long enough to notice it. The unbelieving crowd and the hostile religious leaders, both of those groups amazingly hear the call to receive living water from Jesus. So yes, he confronts them. He doesn't shy away from the truth. Jesus definitely confronts his enemies. And he calls those enemies to himself. From the outset then, we ought to notice how Jesus brings together two virtues that we struggle to keep in balance. Confrontation. Jesus is firm on the truth. He does not back down. And calling. Jesus shows compassion, even to his enemies. Confrontation and calling, fortitude and compassion, firmness and gentleness. Two virtues that we struggle to keep together, Jesus keeps in perfect balance. Friends, this is the incredible glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's not one-dimensional like a comic book superhero. He's not one-dimensional. He's multifaceted. There's depth to the character of Christ that invites you to linger and look and ultimately worship Him. So without apology, with no apology whatsoever, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to focus slowly on the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to linger on these verses with one goal. We want to see Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, we're transformed to be like Jesus, and then we live like Jesus. But you can't live like Him if you're not transformed by Him, and you're not transformed by Him until you see Him. So that's what we're going to do today. We want to look and linger here in John 7 on the glory of Christ, this multifaceted, deep, profound Glory that only the Son of God can reveal. Specifically, we're going to see how that glory is revealed in the way Jesus responds to a world that hates him. His glory is revealed in the way he responds to a world that is opposed to him. When faced with hostility and unbelief, what does Jesus say? What does he do? How does he respond? That's how we're going to approach the passage. And in doing so, we're going to find that Jesus has three messages to a world opposed to him. Three messages to the world that reveal his glory as the Savior, as the Son of God. So we're going to consider each of those messages all with the goal of worshiping the multifaceted, deeply glorious Son of God. That's what I want you to do at the end of this sermon. Worship Jesus. Three messages to the world. We'll start in verses 25 to 31. Message number one, Jesus defines humanity's relationship to God. Jesus defines humanity's relationship to God. John reaffirms that the crowd in Jerusalem is seriously divided regarding Jesus. On the one hand, the crowd sees that the religious leaders are opposed to Jesus. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 
So, so the crowd knows about the hostility. They know about the plan to kill Jesus. But at the same time, they also know that that hostility has failed. Look at verse 26. And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? What should stand out to you here is how confused the crowd is. They can't make all the pieces fit together. If the religious leaders want Jesus dead, then why is he still teaching? And if he's still teaching, then maybe they know that he really is the Messiah. They're confused. And just as quickly, though, they dismiss all of those notions. They're incredibly confused. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Friends, you should note how confident the crowd is in their own insight, their own knowledge. They know Jesus' background. They know his origin. They know his mom and dad. And therefore, they conclude, Jesus can't be the Christ. In Jesus' day, there was this popular belief that nobody would know where the Messiah comes from. That he would have a mysterious, maybe even like an unexplainable kind of origin. But they know Jesus, the crowd reasons, so he can't be the Christ. Where is the crowd's confidence? In their own knowledge, their own insight. They're so convinced of their own perspective that they miss the truth. But, but do you see the irony there? Where is Jesus from? Not only Nazareth, yes, but also from heaven. <laughs> what is Jesus' family tree? Ultimately, not Mary and Joseph, but God the Father. The crowd boasts in its knowledge, but their boast, ironically, reveals their blindness. When they say, we, we know this guy, we know Jesus, they're actually saying, we don't know him at all. We don't know him at all. And that's where Jesus goes in verse 28. He confronts the crowd's ignorance. Listen again, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I came from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. The earthly perspective is not the full story for Jesus. That's the Lord's point in verse 28. Sure, the crowd knows his earthly roots, but there's a heavenly background to Jesus that the crowd doesn't know. I mean, most importantly, who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Father's Son, the Father's sent one. He comes with divine authority through divine initiative. This is the truth that we've seen all through the Gospel of John. The Son of God takes on human flesh to reveal the one we could not know, God the Father. That full story of Jesus combines heaven and earth to give you a complete picture. Fully man, he's from Nazareth, born of Mary. And fully God, from heaven, begotten from the Father. That's Jesus' identity. Heaven and earth together in the one man, Jesus Christ. But this Jewish crowd in Jerusalem doesn't know that truth. They don't see the truth. They can't see past the earthly perspective. They can't see any farther than Galilee. And that fact alone is alarming. But Jesus' confrontation goes a little deeper. Why doesn't the crowd know 
Jesus' true origin? Why can't the crowd see where Jesus comes from? Because, verse 28, the crowd does not know God. They do not know Jesus' Father. He who sent me is true, Jesus says. God the Father is really the one who sent me. And Him, God the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God you don't know. Can you, can you appreciate the weight of that confrontation? Remember, this is a crowd of Jewish people. They're in Jerusalem, the place of God's temple. They possess God's law in the Old Testament scriptures. They've received the covenant. They are children of the promise to Abraham. These are not polytheistic pagans. These are God-fearing Jews. And yet Jesus says they do not know God. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. They don't know God. How can Jesus say such a thing? How can Jesus say that these supposedly God-fearing Israelites who worship in the temple and claim to revere the law of Moses, how can Jesus say that these God-fearing Israelites actually don't know God? The answer is verse 29. Look there. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now you've got to read verse 29 in light of John chapter 1. Do you remember the prologue that opened this book, John chapter 1, that all-important prologue? Do you remember the climax of John's prologue? Verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Only the Son knows the Father. That's the theology of John in a nutshell. Only the Son knows the Father. And Jesus is that Son. He was at at the Father's side, and now He has been sent from the Father's side in order to reveal the Father. So, if you want to know God, if you want to know God, where must you know Him? In Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. And only in Jesus Christ. The crowd does not know God because they do not believe the one whom God has sent. Jesus could not be any clearer. He could not be any clearer. Jesus claims for himself exclusive, exhaustive rights to reveal God. If you want a relationship with God... You cannot rely on your background, your heritage, your insight, or your own knowledge. You must know God through Christ. For that is the only place that God is known savingly. Now as I say this, because we live in a very pluralistic age where everybody's got their own truth. You just find your truth and make your truth and live your truth, which is nonsense. As I say this, someone is thinking, wow, this sounds very exclusive. If this is true, if what you're saying is true, Pastor, then there are only two categories of people, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. 
That, that's awfully narrow. Is Jesus really being that exclusive? And the answer is yes. Jesus is absolutely that exclusive. According to Jesus, there are only two categories of people. Those who know God through Jesus Christ and those who do not know God because they do not know Christ. He is absolutely being that exclusive. And you can see the divide that this creates. Two categories of people. You can see this divide in the passage. Notice what happens. Beginning in verse 30, the religious leaders reveal their status as enemies of God. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. We're going to come back to this silly attempt to arrest Jesus next week, Lord willing. Particularly verses 45 to 52. The religious leaders want to eliminate Jesus, but despite their claim to authority, they can't even arrest him. It's another instance of irony. John loves irony. Those who claim to have authority over the people of God actually have no authority at all. They can't even arrest Jesus. Jesus' life moves according to God's plan. And since God's plan has not reached the end, they can't arrest him. The religious leaders don't know God. Surprisingly, there are some, though, there are some who do believe. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I think we ought to read verse 31 with a note of caution. Throughout this book, the Apostle John is wary of people whose faith rests entirely on signs. So I think we ought to read this with a note of caution. Perhaps the people in verse 31 have a somewhat immature faith that still banks too much on signs and too little on Jesus' word. At the same time, though, even that kind of immature faith is better than no faith at all. So, with a note of caution, with a note of caution, notice how we conclude this first section in the passage. There's a basic divide among the people. There's a basic divide. There are some who know God, and there are some who don't know God. What reveals that basic divide? What makes that divide clear? How you respond to Jesus. That's what makes it clear. That's why we can say from these verses that Jesus defines humanity's relationship to God. Friends, in our, in our day and age, it is increasingly important. It's increasingly important that churches be clear, be clear on this truth. As a congregation, we must uphold what is sometimes labeled the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. All that means is that the only way to know God is through faith in Jesus Christ. So churches in our day ought to be more clear on the exclusivity of Christ. We ought to uphold the exclusivity of Christ. The question, the question though, is how do we do that? How can churches be clear on the exclusivity of Jesus? Well, there are a number of answers to that question, but I want to highlight one 
way that we can be clear this morning that maybe will surprise you. Congregations can make the exclusivity of Christ clear through church membership, of all things. Church membership, a clear practice of church membership is one of the more important ways to uphold the exclusivity of Christ. Church membership. Let me explain what I mean. What does it mean to be a member of a church? Well, fundamentally, church membership is a two-way affirmation between a person and a church. When a person joins a church, when you join a church, that's you raising your hand to say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I've put my faith in Christ, and I want to covenant with the people of Christ. I want to join with His body. When you become a member of a church, that's you saying, I belong to Jesus. And when you join a church, the congregation raises its collective voice to say, we affirm that this person belongs to Jesus Christ. They profess to belong to Jesus, and we find their profession to be credible, and therefore we receive them into the body of Christ. That's what church membership is fundamentally. It's a two-way affirmation. The member affirms that he or she belongs to Christ, and the church affirms that that member's profession of faith is believable, credible, that this person belongs to the Lord. Now, what does that have to do with the exclusivity of Christ? In short, everything. Think about it. What is the criteria for membership in a church? That you belong to Jesus by faith. Only Christ can bring people into his body, into the church. So, we don't base church membership, follow me now, we don't face church membership, we don't base it on your political views, your economic status, your family background, or your ethnic heritage. None of those things matter. None of those things matter for your membership in the body of Christ. What's the only thing that matters? Whether or not you belong to Christ by faith. Church members are born-again Christians. So, when churches have a clear practice of membership... When we make it clear that those who join our body have been born again by God's grace and that only faith in Christ makes them a part of that body, when we have a clear practice of church membership, notice what that communicates to the world. It communicates to the world that faith in Jesus is the only way to know God. It communicates to the world that a relationship to God is based solely upon your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't come to God through any other means. We don't receive members through any other means except faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see then, I hope that you see, do you see then why clear church membership becomes such a vital, important practice in our pluralistic age? It's not simply keeping a list of names on a list, uh, keeping a list of names on a roll. It's so much more than that. It's part of the way that we together, all of us together, uphold to the world, communicate to the world the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Jesus defines humanity's relationship to God 
And by doing things like guarding membership, churches can winsomely uphold that truth to the world. The only way to know God is through Christ. Let's turn now to the, to the second way Jesus responds to a world that is hostile. This is message number two from Jesus. In verses 32 to 36, we see that Jesus defies the world's opposition to God. Jesus defies the world's opposition to God. The Pharisees, verse 32, get word of some people believing in Jesus. They don't like that, so they try to stop it. Understand that this is a picture of the world's opposition to God and to his Christ. Verse 32 is the rebellion of mankind in miniature. Listen to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the plan is clear. If they can't intimidate Jesus, then they'll eliminate him. They try to arrest him. Jesus' response, however, reveals the strength of resolve that upholds everything, including our salvation. Notice again the Lord's response, verse 33. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, then I am going to him who sent me. Now on one level, verse 33 affirms the reality of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. He has come from God the Father, and he will soon return to God the Father. This is the Father's plan for the Christ. He will be exalted through the cross, vindicated through resurrection, and enthroned through ascension. So verse 33 affirms God's plan for Jesus. But on another level, think about what verse 33 denies. Verse 33 denies the opposition of the Pharisees. They try to remove Jesus by arresting him, but their attempt is futile and foolish. They are not the ones who run Jesus' life. The Father runs the events of Jesus' life. So verse 33 is Jesus saying, I am going to go away. I am going to go away, but it's not going to be because of you. I'll finish my race because the Father has set it for me. So he denies the plan of the Pharisees. Jesus then openly defies them. No matter how hard they scheme, they won't be able to touch him. At least not outside of the Father's will. Look at verse 34. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, this, this is a fascinating verse, verse 34. It's fascinating because it reminds us that Jesus' ascension is the display of his unique glory as the Son of God. No one, no one, not even faithful disciples like Peter and John, no one will be able to follow Jesus in his ascension. Jesus alone has the authority and the right to ascend into the presence of God. Jesus alone has that right. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but wait a second, aren't, aren't we going to one day be in the presence of God with Jesus? Yes, absolutely. 
But we don't get there the way Jesus got there. Think about how we get to the presence of God. It's not through ascending on our own, but through Christ descending again to come and get us and gather us together and take us where he has already gone. It's why the author to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the great forerunner. He's the trailblazer, the pioneer. We only get into God's presence because Jesus went there first. And when we get there one day, it's because he comes back and gets us. When is that going to happen? How's that going to happen? I don't know. The trumpet's going to blast and then it's going to be over. So verse 34 is that Jesus alone has the authority and the right to ascend again into the presence of God. But there's another layer to verse 34 that we, that we can't miss. Jesus says that the time is coming when the Pharisees won't be able to find him. What does that mean? Think about the spiritual state of the Pharisees, at least in general. Do they know God? No, not savingly since they do not believe in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. So, the Pharisees stand under the judgment of God. And if they are not careful, they will die under the judgment of God. That's the depth to verse 34. That's the warning to verse 34. The Pharisees stand on the edge of condemnation. Their hard-hearted rejection of Jesus may very soon consign them to judgment. They'll seek him, but they won't find him. They'll die in their sins. Of course, the crowd in John 7 doesn't understand any of this. Look at verses 35 and 36. They're, they're, they're debating Jesus' words. Is he going to leave Israel? Is he going to go teach Gentiles? What in the world does Jesus mean? The crowd is confused. But the Pharisees... Don't, don't miss this for the Pharisees. The Pharisees ought to be sobered. They ought to be sobered. Jesus has warned them of what is going to happen. Not only will their opposition fail, they can't get rid of Jesus. Not only is their opposition going to fail, but they are actually accountable to Jesus. And their time is short. You will seek me and you won't find me. Their time is short. They're accountable to Jesus, and so therefore they ought to be sober. Jesus defies the world's opposition to God. There's a lot of ways that we could go to make some application from these verses. The place that I think of, these verses remind me of the consistent biblical teaching that today... Today ought to be the day of repentance and faith for those who don't know God. Every person in this room, every person in this room ought to recognize that he or she stands on the edge of eternity. There is but a breath between you and me and the reality of God. There's but a breath. So when you hear the gospel truth of Christ... The time for response is today, right now, this moment. Because there's a day coming when verse 34 is true of everyone. You will seek me and you won't find me, Jesus says. 
Today is the day to respond. Listen, I will, I will contend that this is one of the great deceptions that the evil one uses to blind people to the truth. Sometimes folks will say to me, like, aren't you glad we don't live in a third world country where our lives are at risk from malnutrition and violence? Yes, I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that. But do you know what one of the dangers of living in a place like America is? Is that you get lulled to sleep. You think everything's okay, and we're just always going to have tomorrow. One of the great deceptions that the evil one uses to blind people to the truth is this this idea that tomorrow is promised, as though you're always going to have another moment to deal with the grand questions of life. Who is God? Am I right with Him? Where do I stand for eternity? The reality of God is inescapable, the Bible tells us. The reality of God is inescapable. And God has put eternity into people's hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 So every person knows, we must know, that there is something beyond this physical life. What's more, the reality of God, the reality of God confronts us squarely each day. God puts himself on display for everyone to see each and every day. How? Every time the sun rises. Every time you realize that our entire genetic code is contained in one single strand of DNA. Every time a toddler learns to talk, it's a miracle. That's God putting himself on display. The reality of God is everywhere if you have eyes to see. And yet the evil one blinds people to that reality. Every day he lulls people to sleep by telling us, Oh, there there will be another day to think about such things. Tomorrow will always come. And you can wrestle with God and eternity and sin tomorrow. Don't waste today. Don't spend today when tomorrow is just as good. Someday, friends, there's not going to be a tomorrow. Someday there will be no more someday's. There will just be you and God, and eternity. And when that day comes, and it will surely come, when that day comes, you will look back on all the todays of this life, and you will hear the haunting voice of Jesus. Verse 34, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Today, today, is the day to reckon with God. So, don't put it off. Learn from the foolishness of the Pharisees who thought they could oppose God and rely on their own insight and trust in their own knowledge and exercise their own authority. And they were but a breath away from eternity separated from God. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Today, learn from the foolishness of those who have defied God and failed. Today is the day to reckon with the one who is inescapable, God, and his revelation in Jesus Christ. Jesus defies all opposition, and in his mercy, he tells you today to trust him. Today. That's message number two from Jesus. We come to the last section of the passage 
message number three from Jesus to a world opposed to him. Verses 37 and 39. Jesus satisfies our thirst for God. Jesus satisfies our thirst for God. This is really the application of the second point. So I hope you listen. You may recall from the beginning of of chapter 7 that the Feast of Tabernacles is going on in the city of Jerusalem uh, at this point. The Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the annual feasts that God commanded in the Old Testament for seven days. The people of Israel were to dwell in, in booths, in little tabernacles, little tents, to remember God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Feast of Tabernacles. During the feast... There was a daily ritual involving water. The priests would leave the temple and they would walk down to the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and they would fill these jars of water and then they would climb back up to the temple mount. And when they got to the temple mount, there in the temple courts, they would pour out those jars of water on the altar as well as a jar of wine. They would pour out the water and they would pour out the wine. And that ritual occurred every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would process down to the water, they would process back up, they'd pour it out every day. And then every night, there was a time of worship, this joyful, rich time of worship that was marked by expectation and hope. So the pouring out of the water and the time of worship were an expression of the people's prayer that God would pour out His Spirit and that He would restore His people to life again. Just like the rain restores the life of the earth, so the Feast of Tabernacles represented the people's prayer that God would restore them by pouring out His Spirit like water and saving His people. That's the setting. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you've ever wondered how Jesus viewed himself, then here's your answer. If you've ever wondered how Jesus views himself, this is your answer. Without ambiguity, Jesus proclaims that he is the fulfillment of Israel's hope for salvation. He is the fulfillment. If people seek life, they should come to Jesus. If people need refreshment, they should come to Jesus. If people seek the Spirit of God, then they should come to Jesus. Jesus' words, verse 37, connect the hope of the feast with himself. But even more important, Jesus' words in verse 37 connect himself with God. Jesus uses the Feast of Tabernacles to make a point about his relationship to God. He's he's connecting himself to God. The key for the connection is that word thirst. Jesus says if anyone is thirsty, he has in mind more than physical thirst. Jesus has in mind the restlessness of the human soul that can only be satisfied in God. Even though we are 
corrupted by sin, even though human beings have been corrupted by sin, we still retain the image of God. And part of what it means to be made in God's image is that it means that we are made to know God. That's the reason why we exist, to know God and to bring Him glory. So to paraphrase an early church pastor, our souls are thirsty until we quench our thirst in God. On some level... On some level then, you could even say that's what sin is. Sin is humanity's rebellious attempt to quench our thirst with things other than God. So this is the thirst, this restlessness of the human soul that Jesus talks about in verse 37. It's the deeply rooted longing that every image bearer has hardwired into his heart. We are made to know God, see glory, and be satisfied in Him. That's why we exist. If anyone is thirsty for God, Jesus says, then come to me. Now here's the profound connection. Jesus' call to the thirsty, that call to the thirsty echoes God's call in Isaiah 55, one of the most precious chapters in all of the Bible. Isaiah 55, 1, God declares, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water and drink. Isaiah 55, 1. John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Isaiah 55, come to the waters. John 7, come to me, Jesus says. What God promised in Isaiah, Jesus fulfills in himself. To be thirsty is to recognize your need for God, for the salvation that only he can provide. And Jesus is God's provision of that salvation. What God promised, Jesus fulfills. And so this raises the all-important question, how do you drink from Jesus Christ? If you're thirsty and you want to drink, how do you drink from Jesus? The Lord gives you the answer, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You may remember in chapter 6 how eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood were vivid images for faith. The same pattern is at work here in John 7. To drink living water is to believe in Jesus Christ. If you're thirsty and you want to drink, what should you do? Believe in Jesus. And I want to be clear on something here. To drink living water is to believe in Jesus. That's the imagery. But verse 38 Verse 38 is more than imagery. (laughs) Through the imagery, Jesus is actually teaching us what saving faith entails. He's teaching you what it means to trust him in verse 38. Think along with Jesus for just a moment. When you're thirsty, like I am right now, when you're thirsty and you need a drink of water, you are in a sense admitting that you cannot quench your thirst on your own. The water has to come from outside of you. And and you drink it, you drink it believing that the water will quench the thirst that you cannot quench on your own. So to stretch the image here a little bit, every drink of water is an act of faith. Believing that the water will meet the need that you can't meet. Now apply that to verse 37. The image of drinking water is a nearly perfect picture 
for saving faith. What do we declare when we come to Jesus in faith? We declare that we cannot quench our thirst on our own. That our souls are so parched with sin that there is no life or ability left in us. If we're going to have our thirst quenched, we need water from outside of us. We need to drink from outside of us. We need life poured into us or else we will die in our sin. And through faith, Jesus is that living water. We receive him by faith so that the value and the power and the life that Jesus possesses quenches the thirst of our sin-parched souls. The image is more than an image. It's Jesus teaching us. We drink water because we cannot live without it, and we trust Jesus because we cannot be saved without him. It's a nearly perfect picture. Indeed, this is the glory and the grace of John 7, confrontation and calling. Jesus confronts a world utterly opposed to him. He's pursued by enemies who want to kill him. And in the face of that hostility, Jesus does not return evil for evil. It's staggering. He doesn't return evil for evil. He proclaims the good news of, God, of salvation in God's name. He calls people, even his enemies, to drink from his gospel and to receive life everlasting. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, He is calling you, He's calling you to quench your thirst in the gospel. Turn from sin. Trust Jesus and find that the satisfaction for your soul that you've sought for for so long, you can only find that in Jesus. If you do know the Lord Jesus today by faith, then he's calling you to drink again and again and again from his gospel that never runs dry. So wherever you are today, God in his word is holding out this call to you. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ and drink from life everlasting. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to respond to your word as we ought to. Please give us, Father, hearts of faith. Faith is a gift from God. We pray, Father, for the gift of faith. We pray, Lord, that you would grant the new life to those who do not know you. We pray that you would sustain the life of those who trust you and that you would do both of those things, Father, through the word of God, revealing the gospel of Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit in our hearts for your glory and our good. God, please work among us. Please come now by your Holy Spirit and bear fruit in your church for the sake of your name. Prepare our hearts, Father, as we sing before we come to the table of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.